right, so uh, if you're a kid or you want to go with the kids, uh, Terry and Fernanda. Terry, yeah, donuts? Always, man. So uh, head, heading up. Yeah, go, bro. But you're going to miss what God has for us here. But if you're supposed to go, by all means, just know it's like the Gestapo. You go down in the kids, man, you may not come back. No, I'm just messing. Uh, which, by the way, let me just share this real super quick. Um, uh, it, just letting a need be known, um, at this point, we, we do have uh, probably like five people, five different people rotating in kids' ministry um, right now. And Ashley, who kind of puts a lot of the music stuff together, too, with the band, um, does some other things. Um, she's been kind of putting that together, but that's not really her gift. That's not really her calling. She's been faithfully just doing it. But if somebody has the gift or calling to organize the kids' ministry, to just simply uh, contact people, basically make sure they have what they need, um, more of an organizational thing, not looking to make you stay down there all the time. That's kind of what it is, just organizational. Talk to Ashley and let her know that, you know, you'd like to help in that area. I'm just making a need known, and maybe there's somebody sitting here that says, dude, I'd like to serve, but somebody's already doing this, this. Here's an opportunity if, if God's calling you to do it. Again, it's not like, oh, dude, we're freaking out. We need somebody to do it. It's an opportunity. So take a look at that and see, uh, you know, um, see if that's maybe something God wants you to do. Um, Zane, you had said something, man, a minute ago. You had... Uh, you had said it's better to have doubt, like God uses our doubt. It's better to have doubt and, and, and ask God what he wants you to do in that. And it's better to do that than know it all, think you know it all. Amen. Right, yeah, you know, because sometimes we think, we, we, uh, dude, I should know this. I think I know this. And so I got it. I'm just going to do the best I can. When God really wants us to ask and he gives us opportunities to hear from him. And so today is exactly that. And um, uh, today God is going to share something with us. God... Uh, through sets. God is going to speak to us through sets. So I'm going to go sit down. sure a message has never been delivered with that intro either with <laughs> Bangles, 1986 right Erica you saw him in concert <laughs> so when I we're gonna study we have one verse to study today Hebrews 11 29 um, we need to look at the backdrop for that but uh, you know I, I thought I would start with a little illustration of that verse in, in my life uh, when I was 44 I had been in seminary for maybe a little over a year, and I was ready. I was ready to rock. I was ready to be a preacher. I was ready to be a teacher. I was ready to do it all. I had had enough, right? I'd had like, I don't know, Greek systematic theology, a few other courses and whatever, and I was ready to go. The problem is, is that there wasn't a church that would hire me anywhere in Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Texas. It didn't matter where I went. No one was interested in, in my services. So God said to me, you need to wait. You need to wait a while. And I was like, no, no, I, I don't want to wait. <laughs> we, were, we were living in, uh, in, in, uh, 
in Newport, Rhode Island at the time. And I don't know if you know anything about Newport, Rhode Island, but it's like the Navy capital of the world. It's, it's just, it's seamen, Navy, all over the place. And so I had the idea, not prayerfully, I had the idea that I'm going to join the Navy. And so I went to Charlotte, I'm like, I'm going to join the Navy and I'm going to be a chaplain. And she's like, yes, that's a great idea. You should join the Navy, you should be a chaplain. I'm 44 years old. I've never served in, 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 in the armed services before. Um, so I called the recruiter and I said, hey, my name is Seth and I want to join the Navy. I want to be in a chaplain candidacy program. And the guy's like, oh, all right, well, I'm going to ask you a few questions here. And so he asked me a few questions and then we got to my age. <laughs> How old are you? 44. <laughs> so he said, if you were 15 years younger, you'd still be 10 years too old. <laughs> but I was not going to be deterred. So I called the Air Force. I got the same response. I called the Marines. I got the same response. I called the Army. And I got the same response. So what did God want me to do? He wanted me to stay in school. He had a plan for me, right? That, uh, Proverbs was 16.9 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So he kept me in school for a couple more years, and I took many more classes. He taught me how to evangelize. He taught me how to share Jesus without fear. He taught me how to do all kinds of things I didn't even know that I needed to do. And so a couple of years later, in his time, in his place, and in his manner, I'm now a chaplain in a jail. I'm not 47 years old floating out in the middle of the Atlantic or in the Persian Gulf on an aircraft carrier. <laughs> He's ordained me. I am a preacher. This all happened in his time, not in my time. And I didn't think that his way was the right way, honestly. I didn't think so. But I had to wait. I had to wait on him. So that brings us to our scripture today. You turn it on. There we go. So Hebrews 11.29, if you want to turn to that in your Bibles. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. That verse right there, I promise you, has all of the answers to every problem you've ever had, have, or will have. It is all right there. But we have to dig into it. We have to understand what that verse means by going back into Exodus a little bit. So, how did we, how did we get here? How did we get to the Red Sea? We had the 10 plagues, right? So, the, the, the 10 plagues in a speedboat God says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go that they might worship me. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, the Lord told me to tell you, let my people go that they might worship me. Seven times he does this and seven times the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. After the seventh time, Pharaoh says, go, go, I can't take anymore, go, but leave your children. And Moses says, no. And the Lord visits the eighth and the ninth plagues on him. After the ninth plague, Pharaoh says, go, go, take your kids, 
but leave your stuff. And Moses says no. And so he visits the 10th plague on him. And after the 10th plague, Pharaoh says, just go, just go. And Moses says, we're going to go, and we're going to take your stuff. Yeah. And that's where we are right now. So Proverbs 16.25 says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. When you leave Egypt, in the Exodus here, we've got two million plus people that are filtering out of Egypt. The way is super easy. You take a left out of, you bang a left out of Egypt. You go about 100 miles up the Mediterranean coast on this thing called um, the Way of the Philistines, and then you're in the land of Canaan. Bam, done. And that's exactly what they wanted to do. But that's exactly what the Lord did not want them to do. See, the Way of the Philistines was aptly named. It was built with Philistines. The Philistines were the second most powerful people in the world, the second most powerful armed force in the world at that time, next to the Egyptians. And the Lord knew that they absolutely were not ready to do battle. They couldn't do it. So what he wanted to do, essentially, is he wanted to, he wanted to give the Israelites an associate's degree. He wanted to give them a two-year degree. He needed to teach them who he was. They had spent 430 years in Egypt. The Israelites were no longer Israelites. They didn't really see themselves as the people of God. They saw themselves as Egyptians. And God did not want them to identify as Egyptians. He wanted them to know that they were the children of God. So. Moses acted like an Egyptian, right? I think Zane preached on this. When Moses was 40 years old and he killed the Egyptian, what did he do? He ran. He acted like an Egyptian. He ran and he basically hid Midian for 40 years until the Lord called him. The Lord called him to bring his people out. And that's, that's really where we are right now. So the Lord wanted them to have the law. Why? Galatians 3.24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So this works. So he wants us to follow in faith and don't walk like Yeah. He wants us to follow in faith. So we're going to start today on uh, Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. If you guys have your Bible, we're not going to be doing sword drills here. We're going to go straight through from uh, the end of uh, Exodus 13 all the way through Exodus 14. So in Exodus 13, verse 17, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. There's a couple things wrong with that. Um, not in the eyes of the Lord. The people wanted to go the way of the Philistines, that easy route right up around the Mediterranean. You, know, you bang a left out of Egypt and you get to the land of Canaan. But it was treacherous, and God knew that. And he knew that his people weren't ready. They had been in captivity for 430 years. They were not battle ready. They had no weapons. They were absolutely, completely unprepared to meet anyone on the road. And by the way, 
Remember how I joked and said they left with all of Egypt's things? They're leaving not just with two million people, they're leaving with cattle and you know, gold and silver and DVD players and you know, all that stuff that they, they took from, uh, I'm kidding about the DVD players, that they took from, uh, from, from Egypt. So you know, they're, they're, they're heavily laden. Uh, so what did God do? In verse 18 we read, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. That is so counterintuitive to the way that anybody would expect anyone to get from point A, Egypt, to point B, the land of Canaan. And that was by design. This is all a grand plan that God has so that he can confound Pharaoh, so that he can confound the Egyptians, so that he can do one more thing to them, so that he can humble them, so that he can bring them to their knees, so that he can show them that he is Lord, and so that he can show his people, the Israelites, that he is Lord, so that he can dominate the Egyptians. So the next verse says, And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Some of your translations might say something slightly different, but most of them say, equipped for battle. When you were in high school and you were learning algebra, were you like, why am I learning this? And frankly, most of us have like never used it. You know, you get a balance your checkbook and that's about it. Well, in seminary, you have to learn Hebrew. And it's kind of the same thing. It's like, I want to preach. I don't, why do I need to learn this? This is an example of having to know Hebrew and math at the same time. Because what that verse actually says is, they left the land of Egypt, Hameshin. That means by 50s. That means that they were organized as a military would be, thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. They were organized by fifties, but they had no weapons. So my translation here, the English Standard says, equipped for battle. Not right. And that's important. That's very important to know. Because remember, we're talking about a people who are very, very vulnerable right now as they leave the land of Egypt, as they leave their, their, their whole, effectively their heritage behind. And they know, they know what's coming. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. That's kind of a weird, out of left field verse, right? Wrong. The reason why that's in there is that God wants the people of Israel to understand what their heritage is. God told Joseph 400 years before that they would be leaving. Joseph knew that this exodus would occur. He didn't know when. It's happening four centuries after he died. But it's important for the heritage of the Israelites, for them to identify with their past and make that past Israelite heritage, being the children of God, theirs, instead of being Egyptians. So it's important for them to, to take Joseph's bones so that they could bring them back to the land of Canaan and be buried with, with whom? With, with, with Abraham, with Isaac with his father, Jacob. So verse 20 says, And they moved from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. So where is that? No one really knows. No one really knows. No one, no one knows where Etham is today. But later on in this message, I'm going to give you some pretty interesting information. Uh, but for the sake of, of this, you don't necessarily need to know. We just need to know that they took sort of a circuitous route. They were doing something weird. They went from, uh, they went from Succoth down to Etham, and then they went southeast. And the Lord went with them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. 
to lead them. What does he want them to do? Follow in faith. That's what he wants them to do. And by night, in a pillar of fire, to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So by day, they're traveling with this cloud that is before them so that they might follow it. And by night, they have the security of, of, this, of this fire. And, and it also keeps other people at bay. It keeps people away from them. What do we have? The, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. What do we have that's just like that? That last sentence, yeah. the Holy Spirit, yeah. Did not depart from the people. When you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. That Spirit lives within you. And we have this. Remember the last time I preached, I emphasized this? I'm gonna emphasize this again. We have the Word of God. We have relationship with God, but the only way that we have relationship with God is if we open up this every single day and read it and understand it and know what his will is for us. It's not a matter of coming here on Sunday morning and listening to one of us preach. That's like a vitamin supplement. You know, what you need is you need your food, you need your bread, and that comes from this, that comes from reading this every single day. You can't take enough breaths in one day to last you a week. Nor can you read this in one day and have it last a whole week for you. You have to be in the Word to keep that relationship with Him going all the time. Otherwise, what happens? You become malnourished. You become malnourished, right. And who comes in? Satan. Satan, yeah. All of a sudden, you're, you know, Sunday afternoon, what am I going to go do? I'm going to go watch a football game or... I'm going to go argue politics with my father, or I'm going to go, you know, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to get drawn into some work thing. And that's what Satan loves to do. He doesn't care if you worship the Lord. He just wants you to worship something else. And if you're not in this constantly, then you're vulnerable. You, like the Israelites, are making yourself vulnerable. So, as we move into... Uh, oh, Pastor Eddie's favorite verse. Who knows what Pastor Eddie's favorite verse is? Pastor Eddie knows what Pastor Eddie's favorite verse is. Matthew 6.33. Bam. And what is it? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That, I mean, that's, that's it right there. You know, before you make your plan, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So as we move on to uh, chapter 14 here, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pierot, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. This is um, this is this is the insanity of God. When they were up there in Succoth, what they were doing was he was positioning two million plus people in what's called a wadi. A wadi is a dry riverbed. So it's between gorges. You can't scale these gorges to get out. Effectively, once you're in, you're in, and you're done. So if you were being potentially pursued by someone, that's definitely not where you would want to go. And it gets worse. At the end here it says, and encamp in front of Pi Hahiroth. That literally means in Palestine, in, 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 uh, in Phoenician, it means between gorges. 
right? So it's like, hmm, I don't know if that's a good idea. Between Migdal and the sea, so what's in front of you? The Red Sea of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. So this is, again, this is God telling the people, this is what you're going to do. He's letting them in on the plan. He knows that it sounds crazy. He knows that this would not be anything anyone would ever do. In fact, there's a, a notable general from World War II who read this, and when he read it, he said, the, the Lord is the worst field general that ever was. <laughs> and that's great. That's exactly what the Lord wanted. That's exactly what he wanted Pharaoh to think. That's exactly what he wanted uh, the Egyptians to think. So what does he do? Ultimately, uh, in verse 3, For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. See, there you go. Just like that guy from World War II, Pharaoh said the exact same thing. He has put, the Lord has put them in an absolutely impossible place. There's no getting out. They, he knows they're not armed. They've got the sea in front of them. They've got these huge mountains. They're in a gorge, and behind them is the black death, potentially, of the Egyptian army. Whom, by the way, in the next verse, we're going to figure out what it is that they really want to do. Do you think they really wanted to kill them? Verse 4 says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord. And he did so. Again, I cannot emphasize this enough. The Lord knows what he's doing. This is his plan. It looks super scary, but his idea here is to... To, to overcome Pharaoh in what is seemingly an impossible situation. He wants to prevail in an impossible, he's, he's checkmated, and he is going to prevail. That will demonstrate to Pharaoh and the whole world, the Egyptians too, and to his people who he really is. So that they will follow him in faith, right? Because what happens when the Lord conquers something in your life? It builds your faith. And then, you know, we're people. As Zane said, we doubt. It's like, it's, it's like a breath of air. It's good for a moment, but then the next moment happens and another problem happens, and we start doubting the Lord again. And that's exactly the picture that we're going to see here in a moment. So verse 5 says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we've done that we have let Israel go from serving us? They're, they're saying, uh-oh, we let them go. All of their commerce has probably stopped. You know, what would happen if you took two million people out of your workforce? Yeah. Nothing good. Yeah. The, the other problem is that the Egyptians are worried that the Israelites will go and align themselves with the Assyrians or, or someone else, right? The whole reason why they kept them and enslaved them in the first place place was because they were becoming too numerous and, and the Egyptians were afraid they were going to overthrow them. Now what happens if they go and they align themselves with somebody else? So what do they do? What is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he, Pharaoh, made ready his chariot and took his army with him. Technically that word is, is people, not army. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers, all of them. So that's not just 600 chariots. 
than 600 chariots that were the select, the cream of the crop, the Porsches, the Ferraris, whatever, and all the rest of the chariots. You know what you got to know about chariots when you read this passage, but it's not abundantly clear? Is that God knew that they would do that. David, King David, did not fight with chariots. Because chariots are good for one purpose and one purpose only. They're good for dry, solid, hard-packed, flat land that ain't wet. David did not live in such a place. He lived in very hilly terrain. And he knew that if, he armed, if, his, if, his, if his troops were in chariots, they, were, they would be hopelessly lost. So the Lord knew that. Also remember that the Israelites are not alone. They have horses, they have cattle, they have all manner of Egyptian things that they're bringing with them, but they don't have chariots. So let's see, verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. Well, the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and all his horsemen and his army, and overtook them in camp by the sea by Pierrot in front of Baal Zephon. So the plan is, is being executed perfectly. The Egyptians, all two million of them, are on this beachhead. And lo, here comes the Egyptian army with all those chariots. It must have been a pretty scary sight. But remember, the Egyptians weren't coming to kill. The Egyptians were coming to reclaim them so that they could enslave them once again. And verse 10 says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. They were walking like Egyptians at this point. Think about it. Being steeped in Egyptian culture for 430 years, you don't know that there is this marvelous, wonderful, miraculous, omnipotent, omniscient God who knows, who sees, who is everywhere. They don't understand who he is because they are effectively Egyptians. And as Egyptians, when you see a fighting force coming toward you and they greatly outnumber you and they have weapons and you don't, you're encumbered with stuff, your thought is, I'm dead or they're going to enslave me. And this is exactly what they said. They feared greatly. And the, and, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, that's good. Why is that good? That's good because they were following in faith at that point. For that one fleeting moment, as Zane pointed out, there was doubt. But they were ultimately going to follow in faith. Now, here's the doubt. The doubt is great. You guys ever have this kind of doubt going through your mind sometimes when, when there's something confronting you that, that you're confused about? They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Sarcasm, fear, you know, they're, 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 they're crying out to Moses, right? Because Moses is their mouthpiece to God. Moses is their conduit to God. Our conduit is the Holy Spirit. You know, our spirit cries out with his. But they had Moses, and so they cried out to him. Verse 12 says, Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That is so revisionist history. They were not saying that in Egypt. 
They were enslaved. The first hundred or so years may have been okay, but the remaining years, when the new regime came in, and they were enslaved, and the straw was taken away, and their lives were made so much more difficult, they, had, they did not want to be in Egypt anymore. They were crying out to the Lord to deliver them. Remember, the Lord heard the cries of his people in Egypt, and now here they're saying something entirely different. What are they doing? They're doing something that we do. They're certainly doing something that I do. Whining. Whining, oh yeah. But do you, do you ever hearken back to the good old days? The good old days, you know, we have rosy colored memories and all that. I don't, I don't, I don't hide the fact that I'm a recovering alcoholic. And I don't hide the fact that during the last few years of, uh, of, of my active alcoholism that, that things were as bad as you could possibly imagine. Alcoholic seizures, job loss, arrests, DUIs. Do I, do I look back on that with fond remembrances and think, oh man, I want to go back there so bad. I did once, once. About a year after I got sober, I used to love to ride my Harley to bars and drink and do whatever. And I, a year after I had been sober, I, I was sober for a, a year, maybe even a little, maybe a year and a half or something like that. Um, my wife and I found this, this, this biker bar that was in a really cool, out of the way place. It was a nice long ride through the country. And you get to this bar and it's filled with Harley guys and there's this awesome pool there. It's an Olympic-sized pool. I had never seen an Olympic-sized pool before. And you could go swimming there. And the best part of the whole thing was that there was a sign there that said, you must be 21 or older to swim in the pool. And I'm thinking, this is great. We can swim in the pool and there's no kids in the pool doing what kids do in pools. And we have the place to ourselves, and this is awesome. And so Sharla, who is also a recovering alcoholic, who shares a sobriety date with me, we're loving it. We're doing the backstroke in the pool, and we're making plans to come back here every day for the rest of our lives. And I looked up. We were the only people in the pool. I looked up, and this couple came in, and they sat down, and they were drinking their beers, and they had this four-year-old kid with them. The four-year-old kid had his floaties on either arm. He had a, a, you know, a snorkel mask, a snorkel and a mask on. And he was standing there, and he was ready to do business in that pool. And the waitress came over to him and said, honey, you can't go in that pool. And he went, she went to the parents, and she said, your kid can't go in that pool. So what did the parents do? I don't know if they're alcoholics like I was, but I know what I would have done. They sat there and ordered another beer. And the kid stood there at the edge of the pool with his floaties on and his mask on and his snorkel on staring at me. And I realized, that's not the good old days. Man, that tore my heart out. That is alcoholism. Those are the good old days. That is what the Egyptians are doing here. They're hearkening back to this time that was no good in their lives, no good at all. Fortunately, though, they did cry out in faith. Remember that part. They did have a moment of lucidity where they cried out in faith. Uh, verse 13 
says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. That's a weird verse, right? When I read that, I thought it was weird. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you will never see again. That's all part of God's plan. See, if they didn't see those Egyptians there, then God's plan wouldn't be coming to fruition, and something very, very bad would happen, because that would mean that God is not sovereign, God is not in control, and God's plan isn't working. But he told them his plan through Moses. He told them exactly why he was moving them along this route. And they saw the Egyptians, and they should have rejoiced at that point, but they didn't. So verse 14, 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Wait on the Lord. Be strong. Let him strengthen your heart. Wait on the Lord. When things seem as though they are at their bottom, when you have no idea what to do, that's exactly where he wants you. And what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to get up and figure out what the problem is and come up with solutions and do something? No. We seek him. That's what we do. We wait on the Lord. Verse 15 says, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Understand that that verse isn't the Lord saying to Moses, per se, why do you cry to me? Moses is the representative of the people. So you can think of Moses equals the Israelites at that point. So Moses is speaking to the Israelites. God is speaking to Moses, to the Israelites through Moses there. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. His idea here is to trap the chariots. He knew that Pharaoh would use the chariots. He knew where chariots couldn't go. He knew that if the Egyptian soldiers were on foot, then they could get away, potentially, right? They wouldn't be stuck in the muck for what he was about to do. He also knew that pride would disallow the Egyptians from saying to Pharaoh, we ditched our chariots and we went running through after the, after the Israelites. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Again, we see the Lord wants victory. He wants the glory. God gets the glory. The chief end of man is to worship the Lord, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. Verse 19 says, The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel. Little side note here. The angel of God. I don't know how many. It's hundreds of times in the Old Testament you'll see reference to the angel of God or the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus. That's what we call a theophany. That is Christ himself making an appearance. And the ultimate theophany was the incarnation when Jesus became man to walk among us. So then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. The angel of the Lord is the same thing as the pillar of the cloud is the same thing as Jesus. He was moving before them. Because he wanted them to follow faith. Right. Now, 
He moved behind them. Why? To protect them. Right. He wants to protect them. He wants to protect them from this army that they can see bearing down on them. Uh, so, verse 20, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night long. God protects. This is a picture of God, Jesus, protecting his people. They needed time. They needed time to break camp. Can you imagine what it would be like if God said to you, in the morning, we're going to go... We're going to go into the sea, first of all. They still had no idea what that was all about. But you're going to get ready, and you're going to get ready to go in, you know, at 0,500 hours, and, uh, and, and that's it. So two-plus million people have to get ready to go. They needed the time. They needed the protection. What did the Egyptians think of this cloud that was before them? They didn't know. Some, some people think that perhaps they thought that it was, uh, it was like morning dew or something like that. Don't know. Don't know. But whatever it was, it was God's intent. It was his plan. It was the way that he used to keep them apart, and it worked. So verse 21 says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. That's the beginning of our verse. That's the beginning of... By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. This is where we start here in that verse. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Hebrew word for that is homa, and homa is not a garden wall. Homa is a city wall. It's a wall that's at least 30 feet high or so. And it's important to note that that wall wasn't on just one side, right? So there wasn't this wind blowing in and, and forcing the sea back so that they could walk across. No. This was a miracle. The wind that God summoned parted the waters so that there was a 30-some-odd-foot wall on either side. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses. So, the Israelites followed in faith. The Egyptians walked like Egyptians. Why did they do it? They did it because they feared Pharaoh. They feared the wrath of their God. They feared that man. And so they went in like buffoons into the sea. Who does that? You know, I mean, even if you for a moment saw that the sea was miraculously parted, you would not step into it, right? You wouldn't, unless God told you to. But if he didn't tell you to, you wouldn't do it. Not without scuba tanks. Not without scuba tanks, right. Yeah. <laughs> and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left hand, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic. He's God. He can do that, 
right? I don't know what he did. No one really knows what he did. But they're in there, the thousand or so chariots and however many soldiers and all of them, they're in there. By the way, Pharaoh's not in there. Pharaoh got out of Dodge. Pharaoh was a coward. Pharaoh left before all this went down. He threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels. That's the crux of this. God knew that chariots don't go in the mud, and he knew they would bring their chariots in the mud, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. This is exactly what God wanted. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, and that, that the water may come back down upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. The Lord killed them all. Obviously, he left enough time for all two million Israelites to get across. And then he let the floodwaters come back in. Verses 29 through 31 are kind of a, a, a summary statement here. 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The people now, after this, for a brief period of time, would follow in faith. In 1978, there was a guy named Ron Wyatt. Now, I know you guys don't need this because you walk by faith and not by sight, but I found this while I was, while I was studying this stuff. And this guy, Ron Wyatt, in 1978, he was part of, uh, he was, he was self-funded. He and his sons read this book. And they looked and they examined the geography to determine whether or not they could figure out where on the Sinai Peninsula, the Red Sea crossing happened. A lot of people, like for example, in the back of my Bible here, they'll say that on the Sinai Peninsula, which looks like this, so, looks like this, the Gulf of Suez is here, and the Gulf of Bekeba is here. If you look on your Bible, chances are the Red Sea crossing is somewhere here, they might put Ethan here and Sukkoth here, don't know. But what he saw when he looked at this stuff was, hey, wait a minute, it seems pretty obvious to me where this particular wadi is. It had to be 18 miles long. It's only one 18-mile long wadi. It had to end in a gorge. It had to end in a beachhead that was big enough to accommodate 2 million-plus people. Well, he found it. He found it. It's called Nueva. So this place called Nueva is a beach that is between gorges that is big enough to accommodate 2 million people. You look back. And all it is is this massive chamber, this massive valley, this massive chasm, rather. And so he looked on the shoreline there, and there was a column that had been <clears throat> embedded in the sea. The inscription on the column had worn off. This is very, very, very 
very, very dangerous territory. It was dangerous then, and it's even more dangerous now. He went directly across. It happens to be the narrowest area of what we call the Gulf of Aqaba on the other side, on the right-hand side, on the eastern part of the Sinai Peninsula. Eight miles across, there was another column sitting there, and he could read the inscription. And in Phoenician, which is ancient Hebrew, it said, Solomon, Moses, Yahweh, Edom, death, Pharaoh, on this column. What does that mean? That means that Solomon, who lived a thousand years before Jesus, erected this pillar on this site to commemorate the Red Sea crossing. Wait a minute, you didn't read that in your textbooks in school? That's because in school we teach things like the earth is 44 billion years old and that, and that this book is nothing more than a fairy tale. Of course you didn't read it. There, there is also, uh, in, in the Red Sea at that point, the Red Sea is very, very, very deep at that point. Very deep. Except for one section between those two pillars, which happens to be, in places, only about 10 meters deep. And it's eight miles across. Doesn't that sound plausible? Doesn't that sound like it's possible that perhaps the Lord could use that particular natural formation that he created to separate the waters and to give them a land bridge that goes across? I don't know. I thought it was interesting, though, when I was reading it. So what do we draw out of this? Remember how I said at the beginning that there is not a problem that you've ever had? There's not a problem that you have? There's not a problem that you will have that isn't addressed by this verse. The reason why I said that is, if, if I were to give you, I, I'm gonna give you a um, sort of a concrete example that you can, you, can, you can use. Don't raise your hands. Is there anyone in here who suffers from alcoholism? Is there anyone in here who knows someone, a spouse, a kid, that suffers from alcoholism or, or drug addiction? Is there anyone in here who has an unbelieving spouse? an unbelieving child, an unbelieving neighbor, this seemingly impossible problem that you cannot surmount on your own. Every single last one of us does. Every single last one of us does. We need to remember that it's his way, not our way. He will, I was talking about this with Eddie earlier, and, and I said I was going to make the title of this sermon, Yahweh or the Highway. <laughs> and I told him that was too goofy, and he said he already preached it twice. <laughs> but it's, it's God's way. He is going to act in his time, in his place, in his manner. Not in your time, not in your place, and not in your manner. Your job is to pray that you get on board with him and understand that it is his way. How do you do that? <coughs> Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But then look what happens in this verse. The people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. They were put in an impossible situation. So point number three is that the Lord will bring you low. He will. He will bring you low. 
so that he can deliver you, so that he can increase your faith. And when he brings you low, we wait on him. We don't try and do something. We don't try and figure out the problem ourselves. We ask him. We wait on the Lord. We let him strengthen our hearts. We wait on the Lord. So the, the last part of this verse, point number five, says, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. That's like the unbelievers. Do unbelievers have an awesome God who really exists that can answer their impossible prayer? Absolutely not. Can you pray to Allah and have him deliver you from some seemingly impossible situation? No, it doesn't exist. But our God does. So again, those five principles that you can apply to your life that come from this directly are to remember that it is not our way. It is his way. That we are to seek him first. That he will bring us low. You will be brought low in your life. But he will deliver you. And when we are low, we need to wait on the Lord. And fifth, these promises exist only for believers. And they're all in that verse that we now know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that as believers, you have done something magnificent in our lives. We have all been to a point where we had gorges to our left and gorges to our right, some kind of trouble bearing down behind us, something that we were sure was going to kill us, and nothing but the Red Sea before us. But Lord, you made a way. You showed us the truth. And you gave us eternal life through the Lord Jesus, your son. And we know that if we believe in the name of Jesus, we are delivered from any impossible situation that we might be involved in. We are delivered. We are saved. Furthermore, there is nothing that anyone can do to us here on this earth that even remotely matters. We do not fear the one that can kill the body. We fear the one that can kill the body and soul. And that, Lord, is you. And we know that we have a place in heaven. We know that when we call on your name, Jesus, that we have eternal salvation. My prayer here tonight is that if there is anyone in here anyone listening that doesn't know who Jesus Christ is, that you've heard this, and that the word of God has kindled that little bit of faith that you might have in your heart, so that when you hear the word, you can receive it, and you can receive him. I pray all this in Jesus' precious name.